Welcome home. You will hear from voices of people you might think you know, listening to these voices that have spent decades behind bars, waiting for their opportunity to come home, will confound your mind. With cameras rolling, we meet them at the intersection of their newfound freedom and a dark past. You'll hear the sound of regret from a soul of someone who has been released from prison and is now fighting to fit back into a society that once forgot they existed. Welcome to Welcome Home. Robert, R-O-B-E-R-T, Prince, P-R-I-N-C-E. I'm from Los Angeles, California. My childhood was low income, Imperial Courts housing projects, and basically just trying to make it from one day to the next. It's not the kind of lifestyle that I'm sure most parents would want for their kids, but it was affordable. Growing up in Watts was wild and dangerous, exciting at the same time. Always somebody to talk to, always somebody to play with. My name's Lucinda Brooks, and I was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I'm kind of like an international um, type person, you know, raised here and there. For the first part of it, I was uh, in orphanages and uh, boys and girls homes and places like that in different cities, different, you know, states and stuff. It was tough. Uh, sketchy. Uh, I did a lot of running away. Uh, you know, there was a lot going on in those type places, of course. And a lot of personalities, a lot of different personalities, different races, uh, different ages. Yeah. You know, we were like the younger kids. We had like uh, teenagers in there with us. So you can imagine what type of situation that was. Growing up in Watts had it, and the projects had an impact on every aspect of my life decisions because I was trying to help my mother support a family of nine. Uh, and the only way I knew how to do that was what I knew best, and that was to be in the street hustling. I had a couple of foster parents that did attempt to take me on and they decided against it. For one reason or another, they, uh, <clears throat> uh, you know, rejected me or returned me to the facility I came from. And then uh, on the uh, other offer, a single uh, parent, uh, that the house was cold when I stepped in and I, I immediately rejected that home. I didn't want to be there. So I, I got returned again. Where I was mentally was like uh, me against the world. I kind of had uh, like an angel on one side and the devil on the other type of uh, situation going on because I tried to do, I tried to work. I was working too and doing, uh, you know, illegal activities.
What led to my crime started from my mother telling me who my biological father was and his name, which I didn't know. And I think from that point, my life just took a spiral to where I was out shooting dice one day, decided to just up and leave and went to where I thought I would be welcomed from my father. It didn't happen that way. I mentally slipped back into a life of crime and eventually went to prison for uh, robbery, kidnapping. While I was serving that time, being mad at everything and everybody, I committed another crime from something that a friend had said, which put me in prison for a little over 43 years. I would like to say that uh, the old behavior caught up to me, you know, like the robberies and uh, getting caught with a little dope here and there, the assault on peace officers, which ended up, you know, me being the only, uh, you know, victim that, that got hurt in that ordeal there. And uh, I, was, I was shot to death. They brought me back and uh, jump-started me back and they gave me blood transfusion and then I was paralyzed from the waist down. They told me that I'd probably never walk again as a result of my you know, actions there. It started in uh, 1999. And uh, I, what I remember, you know, it was a little sketchy here and there. And, uh, but uh, I do remember that it did not end well. This was in a prison in uh, Lansing, Kansas. Uh, state prison and when he told me he also gave me a knife I did what I did and been regretting it ever since what he shared with me was telling me that somebody had said what they were going to do to me and being the person that I was defensive I reacted without thinking and I killed somebody where I was was someplace I never thought that I would ever be because I lost the ability to think for myself. I relied on what he said to dictate a decision that I made, choices that I made, and I couldn't take back what I did. So I had to figure out what I needed to do moving forward. But at the same time, I could only be mad at myself. And it's a price that I paid or not being able to think for myself at the time. I don't know what was going through his head for him to say what he said to me, but I couldn't live my life wondering, continuously wondering about that because I was committed. And once I was committed, that was the only way I thought. That was the way I was raised. You fought till the other person was non-responsive. It wasn't like I grew up uh, a killer or anything, but you fought to the other person was out of breath. And in this case, if somebody tells you that your life is in danger, that's the way I responded. I didn't think any other way. I honestly felt that my life was in danger and it never was. It turned out not to be true. So in retrospect, it was all about adrenaline. I couldn't say that it was, there wasn't any truth to what he said, 
So, regrettably, I took a person's life. It affected everyone involved from the victim's family to my family. And everybody suffered for it, for my actions. It uh, cost me quite a bit. Not just me, but everybody involved. It didn't really set in because I was about 21 in Hutchison, Kansas. The uh, weapon that I had, the gun, was the demise of, of my being shot seven times in the back by the uh, LAPD. You know, it wasn't my time to go. Obviously, I'm still here. And I walked, too. It was a, a robbery at, like, a, a Sally's a Beauty Supply. I had gotten away from the facility, and uh, but I, I believe that the owner had followed, had ensued, um, according to that report. And he, he had called the, the officers, and uh, the uh, address that I had went into well, was on the doorstep. Uh, that's where the shooting had occurred. I remember them saying, uh, drop your weapon. White officers, I remember that. They had their doors uh, you know, swung open and they were like behind them. And when the weapon was dropped, they they did not, uh, you know, stop stop firing. They they were still firing. And uh, all I remember is, you know, a lot more bullets they were letting out than that hit me. And I said to my, you know, self, because I was never really a, a a big religious type person. You know what I mean? It's not because I didn't want to be. I just didn't know. And I was just saying that at that point, this must be uh, God. I can't even believe I have a head because that's where most of the bullets uh, were laid um, when they came out. My adopted family, they hired a, a, a private investigator to investigate the scene. And there, all those play cards were at my head. Like I said, I shouldn't even be here doing this interview, but I'm here. Um, by design, I believe. And God, my faith has gotten stronger, that's for sure. <laughs> it was a murder. I did, I flatlined. I was declared uh, a DOA, dead on arrival, and they um, put the paddles on me, but it just it's just where it happened. But, you know, when you get out of the ambulance and they put you on that mat and the door opens, that's where I flatlined. I could hear, but I couldn't respond because I was, I was gone. But the last thing to go that I now know is your hearing. I heard what they said. They said that I had flatlined and I'm uh, DOA and they um, jumpstarted me. I could just hear them, but I could not respond. I was, I was not here a little while before I came to uh, the realization that, you know, like where I was and I didn't really understand, you know, what what had happened 
fully because I'd never been shot before. I never been in a situation like that. I was wondering how I even used the bathroom and all that. And then when I tried to move my legs and they didn't move. So I like freaked out, you know what I mean? So I didn't know what was going on. And they weren't very friendly either. So, you know, they didn't want to tell you much. They didn't talk much to me and they made comments and stuff, you know, like uh, you must be Superman or Teflon Don or some crap like that, you know? Those cops, those officers on that floor, those officers, it was on the county floor. So when I was complaining about things, you know, and asking questions and uh, they would say, uh, well, get up and see if you can do it yourself. You know what I mean? And when I did try, I had fallen out of the, the uh, hospital bed and that's how I discovered how I was doing everything through the uh, tubing. And then I uh, discovered that there was some pain right here on this thigh because I had got all my shots for, from the back. I didn't get shot in the front. So I'm saying, well, why am I hurting here? And one of the bullets had surfaced from the back to the front right here. And they said that they were gonna take me and do a, an additional operation to see if there's any more uh, bullet and bone fragments or gun fragments in, inside. And they had missed this one. It was nine millimeter and shotgun that they used. And then so when I, you know, was transferred from there to the county jail, they, um, you know, I was taken by ambulance. They, they said that the doctor said I was not ready for transport, but the, but the jail insisted. They, they wanted me, you know, now. So they transported me in the ambulance on a gurney to the Twin Towers County Jail. They felt like assault on peace officers, that sounds pretty bad, you know? Yeah, how could you, you know, shoot a first responder or whatever? But I didn't shoot a first responder, they shot me. They picked the category that they want you to have that will give you the maximum amount of time. That's, that's my theory of it. The category that they picked sounds horrible. It sounds, it sounds like I assaulted a fireman as well as peace officers. But that was not the case. There was not a fireman involved other than the one that had, um, you know, like, had slapped me, you know, to tell me to stay awake, baby. Stay with us. But I, I did not harm a fireman and I did not harm any officers. But they painted the picture as if I was, you know, I'm not saying that I was not something terrible to even to be involved in that because it was a terrible thing. To, I just had the gun in my hand. I, I was guilty of having the gun in my hand, which led to my shooting. I served uh, 20 years in prison itself and uh, a little over a year in uh, that county jail, Twin Towers County Jail, fighting that case. They had uh, offered me 
46 years in the beginning. And I had, I had paid attorneys. I had went through uh, about two of them and I rejected their services. This last uh, attorney who took me all the way through, the first offer was 46 years. He went back in the chamber. I said, I'm not taking no 46 years. I'm not. He said that he's gonna go back there and have a talk with the judge. She agreed to remove 16 years, but she didn't really remove 16 years. She kind of reneged on the deal that they made back there. And when she got out to the uh, courtroom, she said that, um, I'll give you 31 years. I was 31 years old at the time. She said, I'm 51. And she flipped her hair and she said, that's how old you'll be when you get out. And I'm gonna give you five personal years. From the 16 that I was supposed to get, she imposed five, she gave five back. So I ended up having a 31 year sentence. And my, my release date is 2030. I got out August 17th, 2021. But my original release date, if I were to have maxed out, would have been 2030. Without getting in any trouble or maxing out, it would round off to be 2026, was my earliest possible release date. But I had gotten some good behavior credits built up, you know, and uh, by doing groups or self-help programs inside the prison. When I committed that crime, I can tell you the first night of solitary confinement was the realization of my life taking a turn that was so unpredictable. After a while, I had to try to figure out what the rest of my life was gonna be like or about. And that was probably the turning point to where I knew I had to fix myself. At a certain age, if you live life through uh, nothing that's really serious in your own mind, and you go into an environment that's so different that you still function in such a way as though you're on the streets, then certain things don't really start manifesting themselves to where you really are for a period of time. If you have a lot of people in prison for the most part that don't have a high school education or even just go through life with nothing in particular on their mind, they can't go down to the, to the law library and say, well, I need to do this or do that because they don't know anything about the law. And a lot of us didn't read at that time, barely read, we, just, we were just functioning. So you can't expect for somebody to question the laws that be if they're barely functioning on a daily basis. In order to try to be something more than what you were, you have to be able to be honest with yourself. You have to be able to be objective. You know, you have to have a purpose in life. And I had to go through that process because I had no real idea when, if ever, I would be let out of solitary confinement. So I had to think, I had to process, and it wasn't easy, but being honest with yourself was the first part of it. Solitary confinement is like a nightmare that you really don't want to be in 
And if you ever had a dream about something that was pretty bad and you woke up in a sweat, that's solitary confinement. A day in the life of solitary confinement for me was being behind bars and a door, a steel door for five years, nobody to talk to but yourself, coming out of your cell only if you had to take a shower for five minutes, very little recreation if you ever got it, and being around certified nuts that continuously make noise on a regular basis. Sleeping on a concrete slab, a toilet and a sink that was combined and nothing else in the cell. You have to remember you were in a different time period when I was locked up in 1978. The building ended up, eventually ended up being condemned for cruel and unusual punishments. Life in prison for me was, it was pretty good, you know? I mean, you know, it has its problems, of course, with a setting uh, of such. A month later, after I got, remember that bullet I was complaining about that had surfaced from the back to the front? It had um, showed up. It had burst through the skin and it looked like a copper penny and so I had to, they wouldn't help me. They wouldn't help me, it, even though it was swollen and fevered and stuff and hot, they wouldn't help me. So I had to take a, a razor blade and, and I lance myself. I made it like an X and I popped it out. And then after that, I've just, um, all kinds of things was happening to my body because it don't come in with instructions, you know, when you get shot up like that. One day I woke up, like the, the same night that I was in Twin Towers Jail, I woke up and my feet were black, both of them, completely black, like the jacket I got on. And uh, so I, I said that I'm just gonna put the pillow and my blankets underneath, and I just pray that the blood runs back this way. And uh, when I woke up, the blood ran back you know, and, or I would have had gangrene in both feet. You know, it was a learning process this whole way. You know, learning my body again, learning how to walk on my own. Didn't nobody offer me no help and they didn't want to help me. It's because of the uh, type of crime that it was. And uh, I, I had a few scrapes here and there, but that's about it. And, uh, but I just worked a lot, I worked uh, like joint venture, it was the top job where you got paid like minimum wage, you know, like six fifty when I started. Uh, you remember them days? <laughs> the food was like when you, when you first come to prison in that period of time in the late seventies and early eighties. It wasn't bad. It wasn't like your mother's, but it wasn't bad. But as time went on, privatization came into play. It became micromanagement. So whether it was powdered eggs, liquid eggs, turkey, you know, things that basically gave you a certain calorie count for the day, 
and that was good enough. It was all about calorie counts. And as long as you can get that in something that would be uh, satisfying to the, you know, to the health department or to the food supervisors, that was okay. But it wasn't, it wasn't anything nice, you know. I'm over 200 pounds, but I mean, I still wonder how I'm over 200 pounds in the way I ate, but there's nothing glorious about being in prison. Of all things, the prison uh, filed to the courts that they they relook at at me, reevaluate my case and and where I derived at that time and place, and that they consider me for early release. The prison asked the courts to do that. Shit, I I really didn't believe it was possible either. With the district attorney that we had, I had a little hope. I had a little hope. And to come find out is that the judge I was telling you about, you know, she was 51 at the time that I got sentenced. Do you know that was the same exact judge, the same exact courtroom that it all happened in? That judge was uh, 51 at the time, so she had to be in her, uh, you know, 70s well in. <laughs> And do you know what she decided to take off my sentence? That personal five years that she gave me in the beginning, she, she took that five years. I thought that was amazing. Shocking that, was, that she was still there, but amazing. When I was released, uh, my, my family was there. My family, as I would say, is, my, is the family that I chose. It doesn't always have to be blood. I got involved in a relationship in that prison, and I was with this woman for 20 years today. And her mother and her brother and all the family, they love me, and we, we just family. The day I came home was exciting, but I kind of expected more, but I had to learn to not have certain expectations from people. You can't have expectations when you're just trying to find your place in society. I didn't have the, 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 the big party, and for the most part, I probably didn't want it because I'm still trying to settle down mentally. When you go from the only thing electrical in your home whether TV and a toaster to technology being so advanced that you find yourself being frustrated with it. I needed to, I needed to find that little place that I can try to deal with those things on a daily basis, which I'm still doing. My first meal when I got out was a steak. I've been wanting a, a T-bone steak. 
having my freedom now is more challenging than, than I imagined it would be. I never thought that, I don't know why I didn't, but I don't know why I didn't think that I was gonna have some hardship because of the, the crime itself. You know, the charge, how, how it reads. It sounds like, like I'm a terrible person. I'm a, I'm a mean-spirited person and there's no hope for people like me, but there is. And uh, like I said, the, the prison asked that I be set, you know, free because of my exceptional behavior. That's what they wrote about me to the judge and the district attorney. And the district attorney went all the way on my behalf. He stood in and went to court on my behalf. I did not have to go one day to court to get out. I didn't have to go to court or anything. He did it for me. Um, George Gascon, he stood in and he, he took it all away and I left from, from prison. Carla Cole, and I met Brooks while I was incarcerated in Central California Women's Facility. And it was about 2004-ish, uh, maybe, when we met. Brooks was someone that I knew uh, more about, like, being in the same surroundings because we lived in the same housing unit. We had some friends in common, but I didn't get to know her, like, meet her on an individual level till we started to work. And we worked for um, a company called Joint Venture Electronics. And that was an exceptional program to get to be involved in for both of us because it was an outside company that was located inside the prison. So it gave us opportunities to learn actual skills that you would use um, to have a job in the free world, not just uh, some kitchen job or a janitor job, but an actual skill. That work that we learned there was fantastic. It gave us decent money to take care of ourselves so we didn't have to ask our family for money. Portions of our money went to a charity. Portions of our money went to the institution for room and board. That part kind of pisses me off. But, <laughs> you know, we paid taxes and we did all that. So it was a great job. And to work with her there was really good. She's a good team worker. And so, you know, there'd be times when I would need help with my stuff. We'd be in different departments that she'd, hey, you need me to help you bring in the, the deliveries and, you know, or take out the deliveries and things like that. You know, she offered that up. She's a go-getter and, and that's, you know, there'd be times I would go to work and I would be hurting because my back, I have a very bad back. And I'd tell her, I need a chiropractor. And so she'd grab me from behind, lift me up to help crack my back. And I was thinking, you know, she stopped what she was doing to try to help me just to feel better that easy. There's more to that than the, the actual deed you do, but it's the thought behind it and the person she is. My first impression of her was she was big because she had broad shoulders and she looked strong, which for our job was very good. <laughs> and she, and then once she smiled, I thought how beautiful her smile was. It lit up her whole face. You know, we have friends in common, so we would spend a lot of time together and that smile is so sincere. It's, uh, one of those kind of things that you could see right into her with. She's just the sweetest person. As far as I was concerned uh, in my dealings with her, because I'm not a social person, so 
Most of our interaction would be either in the housing unit or at work, but she was kind and she was the kind of person that she'd notice if you weren't your usual. Like if you're a little bit off that day to ask you, how are you? You know, are you feeling okay? Is something wrong? Sometimes things would be off, you know, like you're not feeling yourself that day or you're not feeling well or something happened. And if you needed to talk, she would listen. I don't know if she did that with everybody, but she was my friend and she did that with me. And it helped me to know that she was there for me a lot when I needed her. I didn't ask a lot because when I was in prison, I had a few different ways I dealt with people. I didn't ask them about their past. If they wanted to tell me, then I'd listen. If I did find out, not to judge them on that, because the person you are when you commit a crime to go to prison is not the person you are really inside, especially over time. Everyone changes on a constant basis. So I don't ask. And we've actually, I've learned more about her since she's been home than I knew then. And I figure it's probably just feel safer. You know, once you're home and you have more control, it's a lot better. She doesn't half-ass anything. So when her, her work quality would be good, her friendships, her, her relationships, she's about it. And there's no um, weakness in that. I am proud of her. And one of the reasons was I knew she, she, she got out early. And they didn't have that option when I was there to do some of the things she did to be able to get to that. And so when she came home, I was like, why are you home early? What happened? You know, and she was telling me about it. And once the option was available, that she could do a few extra things to try to get home sooner. She did the hell out of those. <laughs> if, if anything, they owed her something back. <laughs> and I wouldn't have expected less. Like she she wasn't gonna just dip her toe in, she jumps in and she did it. And I am proud of that because there's some people that don't try, they, they're either don't have the motivation or something, like they just don't try. And I don't understand that. But she's had it, and she's always had it, ever since I've known her. So in my mind, whatever she might have done or not done or been accused of, truth or false or whatever, it don't matter. None of it matters. I don't care if she killed a family of five and their dog. The woman she is today, the person she is, and her heart is phenomenal. She's having difficulty getting a decent job. She's staying positive with it. She's taking lesser jobs that she knows like can't be her long-term job to make sure she's staying on the right path and doing everything the right way. That's another thing I'm proud of for her. But I, I wish there was someone that would just give her that break if they knew what a great person she really was. And that felony, that don't matter at all. She, that does not, as far as her capabilities or anything, she would do any job given the chance to the best of her ability. And it's just, she needs the opportunity. But she hasn't stopped trying. She's constantly looking and and trying to find the, the next thing that might be the stepping stone for her. That's pretty good to me. Like so many people give up or look for an easy way out, but she's doing it right. It's coming to her. I'm just so happy to get to talk to people, tell somebody about her, that she's so great to sing her praises. You know, we're 
we're buddies, you know, and I, I, I love it. My life would be so different without her. I describe my old self as a survivor. I, everything I did was for me to survive. I didn't want to live in no box. I didn't want to sell myself. So I did whatever it took to survive and stay ahead of the game. I just was hustling and, and making making moves as, as I seen fit. May not have been the right, right way, you know, exactly all the time. But today, I feel like that I am a, a better person. I'm stronger, I'm wiser, I'm kinder. And I, I just wasn't sitting in prison collecting dust. While I was in prison, I had that, that job that paid me uh, minimum wage. I, I gave to several charities. While I was locked up for, for over nine years, I gave to several charities. The district attorney's office, that's the uh, uh, battered women and children organizations. We gave to uh, many uh, charities and uh, I had to pay for room and board as well. You know, the prison um, charged me room and board. All those years I paid taxes and I worked after I, uh, like almost 10 years with Joint Venture Electronics, I went on to work for their construction, IDL there, where I put up uh, buildings for them from the ground up. I know how to do all of it. I've done it all for them. Uh, I worked there for like almost six years in their construction. The tough thing is <clears throat> for me is that um, my, my, my charge, it's as if, as if I'm reliving it, so to speak, when, I, when it comes to employment. Because a lot of people want to background check you. And when they do, everything looks good. But once they background check me, that's where I'm at right now. But I'm, I'm, I'm working right now, though, but mostly like on my own with my skills. I do like handyman setups for like just common folk. I'm pursuing truck driving school in the nearest future. My name is Xavier Franklin. Robert is my brother. We originated from, you know, out of Watts. In the neighborhoods and projects, they were, there's a lot of struggles. If you didn't have a respect in the community, you basically, you didn't have no rights, like you was bullied. So only the strong survived. I remember, you know, he was tough. You know, he was, you know, a factor and uh, he was respected. Well, when I first heard it, that he was locked up and my mother, you know, broke it down to however she can break it down for us to truly understand that he was uh, arrested and uh, charged. And uh, when a black man get caught up in a situation, whether you did it or not, if you don't got no money, the money at that time was a voice. And we didn't have money, so we didn't have no voice because where we stayed in the projects, the ghetto, the gutter. 
impact on me was, you know what, I'm going to live a legacy for my brother, you know what I'm saying, because he gone for all this time and I'm here and he, he may not make it. So I'm going to keep that integrity going for my family name. And that's how I became the person I became because I pushed the line on everything when it came to the integrity of my last name coming out of Watts. Then you get off into nicknames, Big Zabo, that's who I became. So it don't matter what neighborhood it is, you're gonna recognize who I was because I pushed the line on that. While he was waiting it out, I was pushing the line. So when I did get the opportunity to show him what I became behind his back, um, I'm able to show him today, yesterday, and the days that he's been home. For anybody that I know that's coming home from prison during a lot of time, it's like, you know, you get that you get that real greet, hey man, welcome home by guys that that they couldn't do what you did. So they want to meet you. They want to ask you a question. How did you hold it? How did you keep it, you know, real with yourself? Because a lot of guys would do a certain amount of time and they can't do it no more. That's what I love about my brother. He came home humble after doing 44 years. And you can't penetrate that. My wishes before I was incarcerated, I was a materialistic person. Just trying to make it from one day to the next. Uh, looking for a pair of Chuck Taylors, high top or low top. You know, a Levi's suit, Stacy Adams, all those things that was, life was simple, but you didn't want for very much other than just to be thankful for what you had that day. You have guys that's going into the system over the past 20 years or so that seem to think that if you go out and do a drive-by or commit certain kinds of crimes or any crime for that matter, that it was okay, I'll be out. But the system is changing. People were going in for longer periods of time and some people never learn. How can you actually feel okay with wanting to be in a place where somebody tell you what you can wear, when you have to go to bed, when you have to get up, how many rolls of toilet paper you can get in a week, and if you get a visit to basically bend over and spread your cheeks to make sure that you don't have any drugs coming in. But people aren't really thinking because if they knew what was really in store for them, maybe they might give them a second thought. Maybe. If I can tell myself what I know now to the person that I was, I know that I wouldn't have gone to prison. I know that I would have thought differently. I know I would have reacted differently. I know I'm better than what I was, but I didn't have the opportunity because I didn't take the opportunity to give myself a chance to grow up and think differently. My family was taken, my youth, the opportunity of not having any kids was taken. My life was taken in ways that can never be described. And here I am at an age now to where I find myself wondering about my own mortality.